Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1912, the 16th year of the VFL. Before we get into the footy, let's see what else was happening. 1912 was an Olympic year, with the Games being held in Stockholm. For the first time, Australia sent women to compete in the swimming, with Fanny Durant and Mina Wiley winning gold and silver in the 100m freestyle. In other events, it was the year the Titanic took its maiden and only voyage in April. It was also the year that Norway's Roald Amundsen announced his successful attempt to reach and return from the South Pole, an announcement made to the world from Hobart. No word on whether he stopped to watch any of the local games before departing Tasmania. Two notable publications began in 1912. The Russian Communist Party published Pravda in Moscow, and the VFL began publishing the football record. Both sometimes accused for being effective distributors of propaganda. Importantly, the football record had exclusive rights to publish the players' numbers, a permanent feature on the back of players' jumpers from 1912. The teams for each game were listed in their playing positions on the now familiar oval, albeit the player numbers were not listed against their names. There was a separate list for each club with their numbers. The first edition of the record put its motto up front, Fair play is Bonnie play, which sounds a bit quaint to our modern ears, but some elements of the game that were as true then as they are now. For example, many Melbourne supporters have had to endure the scorn of other barrackers, being told that they are only fair weather supporters. And if Melbourne is not winning, the supporters disappear to the ski fields. In 1912, in the very first edition of the record, a very similar message was seen. Quote, In the past, the Melbourne club has been supported differently from others. Their barrackers were often greatly in evidence when the team won, that when defeat was administered, the supporters were shy and kept in the background. So Melbourne supporters being heckled all the way back in 1912 in the first edition of the football record. And the record followed the precedent set by the Melbourne papers when publishing the premiership lists by including the VFA premierships prior to 1897. It will be interesting to see when the published lists only show the VFL premiers. In February 1912, Melbourne and the football world was shocked by the unexpected death of one of the VFL's leading characters. South Melbourne's president from 1904 to 1911, Mr Henry Skinner, died from heart troubles on the 14th of February. He'd been at the MCG the day before attending the test match against England and had recently won a by-election to the upper house of the Victorian Parliament in 1911. As a successful, self-made businessman and entrepreneur, he was a prototype for many other men who would become presidents of football clubs in the coming years. He had been a key driver at South Melbourne, helping to build the club's membership, facilities, playing list and on-field success. He was also one of the more active delegates at the VFL and his opinions were heard in several previous episodes perhaps most notably in 1910, when accusations of bribery and players being paid to play dead circulated in games involving his beloved South Melbourne. When South won the Premiership in 1909, every player got a new suit courtesy of Henry Skinner, and it was well known that he supported players financially, well before professional payments were approved. His death was a loss for his family, the South Melbourne Cricket and Football Clubs, the VFL, and the South Melbourne community.
and I will miss reading some of his contributions to the VFL delegates meetings. In March, the word about town was of recruiting raids on South Australia, with 12 of the best players from that state said to be heading to Victoria, much to the anger of the South Australian Football League, who protested at such a trade. It was said that football in Victoria was more of a business than a sport. Expect to hear more of that accusation in the years to come. April saw the league annual general meeting and a proposal to establish an independent tribunal to consider charges against the players. It was supported by a majority of clubs, 11 votes to 6, but not the 75% majority needed to change the rules. However, a change that was accepted was the appointment of stewards to act as observers at games with the powers to report players. Given that the umpire had to watch the ball, they could not always see what was happening. Having stewards at each game could keep the players under better observation. Stewards were allowed to go onto the field wearing a white uniform with the word steward written in red across their chest. However, they were not to interfere with the game. That was still the responsibility of the umpire. The steward's role was simply to report players for inappropriate actions. However, one applicant for the role of steward seemed to have got a bit confused about the nature of the job. In his letter of application, he shared his experience as a barman and a steward at a number of clubs and hotels, and that he was pretty handy with his fists. He did not get an interview. There were some comings and goings on the playing list of clubs. A notable departure was Collingwood skipper and coach George Angus, who left the Magpies to coach Williamstown in the VFA. With his injured foot, he did not think he would be playing much, but he did say that he might want to come back. Collingwood appointed Jock McHale as their captain coach, beginning an extraordinary 714 games as coach over 37 years. He will be an ongoing part of these podcasts for many episodes to come. Essendon also lost their premiership skipper, Dave Smith, for the understandable reason that he was selected for the Australian cricket team heading off on a tour of England where he would play in two tests. It was the first and only triangular tournament with England hosting Australia and South Africa. And Jack Worrell was able to persuade one of his former stars to join the Dons. Frank Silvertain had left the Blues to play for North Melbourne in the VFA, helping them win a premiership in the 1910 season. 1912 would find him playing under his old coach once more. Jack Worrell was so confident of success, he had promised Essendon supporters another premiership at their annual general meeting. The season opened on Saturday the 27th of April. Essendon unfurled their premiership flag at their home ground in East Melbourne before having a comfortable win over University. It is going to be another tough year for the boys from University. Melbourne surprised many observers by defeating last year's runners-up Collingwood. It was a close game at half-time, but a five-goal third quarter gave Melbourne a comfortable margin they enjoyed a win at home. Round two saw the grand final replay at Victoria Park. Again, Collingwood was well in the game at half-time, but they only kicked one goal in the second half to Essendon's four to give the Magpies an uncomfortable start to the season. Things got worse for Collingwood in round three, when St Kilda led comfortably all day to win by more than 50 points, leaving the Magpies at the bottom of the ladder, none for three. Round three also saw University defeat Richmond at the MCG. This gives Richmond the unusual honour of being the last team to lose a game to University in the VFL. Despite participating until the end of the 1914 season, the era of professionalism was too much for the committed amateur club to compete effectively. Meanwhile, Essendon picked up their third win for the season, 
beating Carlton with a strong last quarter. Things were proceeding as expected for these same olds until round four, when South Melbourne won a close game at their home ground. As the year wore on, it was clear that South and Carlton were the leading teams. Essendon had started well, but did not have the consistency of the previous season. Round 13 saw Essendon host South Melbourne at their home ground in East Melbourne. But once again, South were too good, coming from behind at three-quarter time and holding Essendon to one point in the final quarter. Essendon were then thrashed by Geelong, who were looking for finals football for the first time in many years. They were third on the ladder, and the reigning premiers slipped to fourth. There was a break between round 15 and 16 for an interstate game against South Australia. The Victorians lost by three goals. There was some criticism of the league, firstly for only taking 18 players across to Adelaide, not having a single spare player seems a risky approach, and the selection of players out of their normal positions, without the advantage of training together to get used to each other as teammates. Also, the fact that the league could afford to send four officials on an all-expenses-paid trip. It would have been better to have more players and less officials, some suggested. It will not be the last time that the league will be criticised for the way that it chooses to spend its money. Geelong took advantage of the break to travel to Sydney, where they played a combined Sydney team representing the clubs playing the Australian game in the rugby stronghold. Much to everyone's surprise, the Sydney team beat Geelong by two points. It was seen as a great advertisement for the promotion of the game in New South Wales, but I'm sure Geelong would have preferred to win the game. In the last three rounds, Essendon, Geelong and Fitzroy were battling for a spot in the final four. But in the second last round, Fitzroy had a comfortable win over Collingwood and St Kilda shocked everyone by thrashing the inconsistent Essendon. In the final round of the season, every spot in the final four could have changed. While Carlton and South were locked in for the top two positions, it was only South's superior percentage that had them safe for the all-important top spot. Carlton had an easy game against the struggling university, virtually a guaranteed four points. South were taking on Collingwood, who were coming to the end of their most disappointing season in the VFL, but could always be dangerous on their home ground at Victoria Park. Geelong just had to win against Richmond to confirm their final spot, but what position would depend on what was happening between Fitzroy and Essendon? However, a loss to Richmond and Fitzroy beating Essendon could see Geelong tipped out of the finals, if Fitzroy won by enough. The game between Fitzroy and Essendon would decide whether the same odds could defend their premiership. Fitzroy had to win by four goals to replace Essendon in the final four. An Essendon win or a narrow loss would see the Maroons miss out, fifth for the second year in a row. The mighty club from the early years of the VFL were now knocking on the door of the finals. 26,000 people watched the game at Essendon's home ground at the East Melbourne Cricket Ground. At halftime, the Maroons were a goal up and the atmosphere was tense. But the same odds were not going to be left out of the business end of the season. They kicked five goals in the second half to three to claim their final spot. And the other games all went as expected. South beat Collingwood to claim the top spot and the right to challenge. And Geelong had a comfortable win against Richmond. South Melbourne finished the season on top of the ladder, equal on points with Carlton, both having lost four games, but South had a much better percentage, due in part to their superior defence. Essendon was third with 12 wins, six losses, and Geelong were in the finals for the first time since 1903 with 11 wins. Fitzroy had finished fifth for the second year in a row. Collingwood had missed out on the top four for the first time in VFL history. They had missed their champion forward, Dick Lee, who had been out injured for most of the season. It was not a great start to Jock McHale's coaching career, but he will make his mark in the years to come. 
The first semi-final was between Carlton and Geelong at the MCG on the 7th of September. The umpire was final specialist Jack Helder. There was a curtain raiser with the semi-final of the Metropolitan League between Leopold and Beverly. In the week leading up to the game, Geelong had had full attendance at training and a fine workout during the week to prepare for the game. On the Saturday, four special trains, as well as the Bay Steamers, would get the supporters up from Geelong. The team would get an early train to arrive in Melbourne in time for lunch and then a quiet walk to the ground to loosen up the limbs from after the train journey. Whatever the era, whatever the transport, players want to recover after the trip. In the two games earlier in the season, it was one game each with both sides winning comfortably at home. The game was played in mixed conditions, sometimes with sunshine, other times with rain, with the occasional bit of hail to spice things up. There was a crowd of 40,133 people, and Geelong were the crowd favourite, both for Geelong supporters who had come by train or bay steamer, as well as the neutral supporters, probably thinking that they had seen Carlton win enough finals games in recent years. And for the best part of three quarters, Geelong played the better football, despite the varied weather conditions. However, they could not make the most important step of all, kicking goals rather than wasting opportunities. Carlton were making the most of their limited opportunities. At three-quarter time, it was anyone's game. Geelong, on a wasteful three goals, 15, 33, just behind an efficient Carlton, five goals, eight, 38. Geelong supporters were hopeful of a second trip to Melbourne for finals football, and the Blues barrackers would have been nervous. Could they hold off Geelong for another quarter? But, as we've seen, across any era of football, teams that are experienced at winning know how to win. And it was the experienced Blues, having played in every final series since 1903, that went on to win the game. Carlton scored five goals to one in the last quarter, with some of the Geelong supporters leaving the game early to avoid the crush on the way home. They had a better season than in previous years, but their year was over, with Carlton winning 10 goals 11-71 to Geelong's 4 goals 19-43. Some Pivotonian supporters might have wondered what would have happened if they kicked more accurately, but not for the last time we will say, bad kicking is bad football. The second semi-final was between Essendon and South, and would also be umpired by Jack Elder. It was one win each so far in 1912, with Essendon winning by one goal in a game that was tight from the start at the Lakeside Oval, and then South winning at the East Melbourne ground when they had held Essendon to one point in the last quarter. Two evenly matched teams, although South had had a more consistent and successful season overall. The fortnight break had allowed players from both clubs to recover from injuries and aches, but Essendon would be missing their champion, Bill Busbridge, one of the finest centre-half-backs of the era. He'd been out injured since the middle of the season. Their star rover, Percy Ogden, would also miss out. South had their injury troubles too. Captain Charlie Ricketts' leg would keep him out of the game, and accurate forward, Len Mother Mortimer, also had a leg injury, keeping him away. The rain fell heavily before the game started and well into the first half, the poor conditions leading to a smaller crowd of 34,000 spectators, 6,000 fewer than the previous week, despite two popular local clubs playing. In an unusual coincidence, the captain for each side were brothers, Essendon being led by Alan Belcher, a powerful ruckman who had taken over the leadership of the club when Dave Smith went on tour of England with the Australian cricket team. South Melbourne's Vic Belcher was also a ruckman, 
that he was leading the Southerners in this game due to the regular captain, Charlie Ricketts, being injured, according to some reports. The Observer, writing in the Argus, said it was the match committee who admitted the team captain. Vic Belcher explained how he ended up in South Melbourne, when both brothers grew up together in Brunswick. It was this way, he said. We had a baker who was a one-eyed South Barracker, and you could not get a ride or a carrot bun unless you barracked for South. I wanted to play for his team, so when the time came, I couldn't get there quick enough. Alan must not have got along with the baker. He ended up at Essendon instead. Essendon had a plan to take advantage of the larger MCG, playing out to the wings, avoiding the centre of the ground at all costs. In difficult conditions, you would expect the scoring to be low and inaccurate. At half-time, it was Essendon that had proven to be inaccurate, while South Melbourne's precision was keeping them in the game. The same holds on 4 goals 5-29 to the Southerners, 3 goals 1-19. A 10-point gap was handy in the slippery conditions, but still close enough to give the Red and Whites supporters some hope. For the first 10 minutes of the third quarter, it looked like South would reward that hope. But they were not able to convert their on-field dominance to scoreboard pressure. While they managed three goals in the third quarter, so did Essendon. Then, in the final quarter, neither side could manage a single goal, with behinds being scored at both ends of the ground. When the bell rang to end the game, Essendon were 12 points up, 7 goals 12-54 to South, 6 goals 6-42. Essendon had the chance to defend their premiership if they could beat Carlton next week. South Melbourne would have a rest for two weeks, thanks to their right of challenge giving them time to regain players missing because of injuries, or being dropped, if you believe the observer from the artist. As discussed earlier, one of the innovations introduced by the VFL in 1912 was stewards, who could enter the playing area and monitor the players and report any infringements. One of those stewards reported George Bauer, South's dashing sentiment, for striking Essendon's Fred Barry. Bauer was suspended for four weeks, therefore missing the grand final for 1912. In something of a reversal of the process, South Melbourne reported the steward who had laid the charges against George Bauer. It was alleged that the steward, a certain Mr Myers, showed strong partisanship by openly proclaiming the success of certain Essendon players, that on several occasions that he had advised players what to do, and at the end of the game shook hands with and congratulated the Essendon players on their success. In addition, it was suggested that he intimidated South Melbourne players by suggesting what would happen if they did certain things. Perhaps John Morrill had discovered runners many years before they were introduced. The league investigated, but despite support from the field umpire for some of the allegations, the charge was dismissed. It was revealed, though, that Mr Myers' real name was William Heidi. No idea why he was using an alias. While we normally focus on the VFL in this podcast, The VFA had a quite remarkable final series in 1912. In the first semi-final, North Melbourne drew with Brunswick, 9 goals 6 each. So they had a replay two weeks later after the second semi-final, which was won by the Essendon VFA team. Drawn finals are unusual, but not remarkable. But when North Melbourne played Brunswick on the 7th of September in the first semi-final replay, both teams kicked 6 goals 12 each for a second draw. They had a third game on the 14th of September, where North finally managed to beat Brunswick. In what was now the VFL preliminary final on Saturday the 21st of September, Essendon would take on Carlton, another clash between Jack Worrell and his old team, this time with Frank Silver Kane on the field against the Blues. 
The curtain raiser for this game was the traditional Sydney schoolboys versus Melbourne schoolboys match. It had been scheduled for this week on the assumption that the grand final would be being played, but because of South Melbourne's loss to Essendon, this week had turned into a preliminary final. The Sydney boys would win by one goal, another step forward in the promotion of the Australian game in the Northern States. The umpire would once again be Jack Elder. Other umpires must have wondered what they had to do to get a finals game. The two games between Essendon and Carlton this season stood at one win each. Essendon won the first game at their home ground and Carlton were easy winners at Princess Park later in the season. The start of a poor three weeks for Essendon, who lost to Carlton, South Melbourne and Geelong, the three other finalists in 1912. But that was then, and it would be the game today that would determine Essendon's fate and their ability to defend their premiership. After poor weather for the semi-finals, this game was played on a fine day in front of more than 47,000 people. Essendon had an unlucky start to the game. Just moments after the opening bounce, their wingman, Fred O'Shea, known for his running game, had his knee so badly injured that he was carried from the ground. He reappeared a little while later and was involved in another collision and again was carried from the ground. He finally reappeared after half-time, basically standing in the goal square in the hope that the ball might land in his arms. Essendon had the wind in the first quarter, but Carlton were playing the better game, although not making as big an impact on the score due to inaccurate kicking. Essendon got the first goal of the day with a hurried shot by Fred Baring, just getting past Carlton's fullback Doug Gillespie. The Blues supporters were confident that when they had the wind, their better play would be rewarded with better kicking, but Essendon changed their playing style, opened the game up and were more effective in their passing to each other. Fred Baring got his second goal for the day. There was plenty of free kicks being paid and some Essendon barrackers began to suspect the umpire was favouring the Blues. Late in the quarter, Jack Bahey was in the action for Carlton, kicking a high punt for their first goal. Gaining some ground on the same odds. But in the last minutes of the quarter, Essendon's halfback flanker Jack O'Brien got the ball to Percy Odgan on the half-forward line, whose pass on the Fred Barring resulted in Essendon's third goal for the day. The half-time score was Essendon 3-goal 7-25 to Carlton on 1-goal 7-13. Goals came in a flurry in the third quarter. Even though Carlton were kicking against the wind, they began to kick with better accuracy. Both teams picked up three goals. Carlton were feeling unlucky about the end of the third quarter when Vin Gardner had a shot from the boundary line with only a narrow opening to aim for. He hit the post for the third poster for the quarter. The scores were Essendon 6 goals 6.42, leading the Blues 4 goals 10.34. Even though Essendon were effectively a man down with the injured Fred O'Shea hobbling around in the goal square, they had maintained their lead, but it was only eight points. Would it be enough with Carlton finishing with the wind? Essendon moved forward first, but only got a point. Then Carlton had the ball on their forward line, tied up against the boundary. And a, and a lucky, or was it a skilful kick by Tom Clancy, resulted in a mark to Carlton's rover, Viv Valentine. An easy shot at goal meant that the Blues were only three points down, with plenty of time available. Frank Kane had a chance to open the lead again for Essendon, but he missed the target, and it was a four-point game. The sealer came from an unexpected source. A clearing kick by Pat Shea to Fred Baring, who then lobbed it over to an unmarked and somewhat crippled Fred O'Shea in the goal square, where, with one good leg, he scored the goal.
Carlton now needed to kick two goals to take the lead. Essendon were defending and the Blues were attacking. Vid Gardner had another shot on a tight angle, but this time it was a goal. There was 10 minutes of desperate play with the crowd roaring for both teams. Carlton were five points down. A rush of activity and a couple of behinds to the Blues. They were only three points behind. In the final minutes of play, Essendon's rover, Ern Cameron, one of the best players for the game, threw himself at the ball with some Carlton players jumping in as well. Ern Cameron's leg snapped below the knee. As he sat on the field, waiting for an ambulance stretcher, he could just watch his team, now two men short, desperately defending their narrow lead. Then the bell rang, and Essendon had held on in a mighty struggle, 7 goals 10, 52, to Carlton, 6 goals 12, 48. And just to prove that trolling and poor behaviour are not new developments, here is a story that was reported in the Herald. After the preliminary finals over, a well-dressed gentleman approached an Essendon official and asked how Ern Cameron was. On being told that his leg was broken, the stranger said, quote, Serves him right, and I'm only sorry O'Shea's wasn't broken too. End quote. He got no further, for the official's fist shot out and reached its destination. Sadly, today's trolls can vent their poison anonymously online and not be held to account. Not that I'm advocating violence, of course. Essendon were into their second grand final in a row, but would have to take on South Melbourne with an injury-depleted team, having lost two of their best players. The match committee considered a number of options. The retired champion, Buzz Rich, offered his services if the club wanted, despite having officially retired after a knee injury halfway through the season. There was even talk of the former champion, Albert Thurgood, pulling on the boots again, despite being out of the game for five years, and he was 38 years old. At the other end of the spectrum was Henry Jane, a hefty farmer from St James, who had played three games for Carlton before being cleared to Essendon. He had not yet played a game for the same odds, but turned up for training on, on Tuesday and impressed all watchers with his form. Even more notable, given that he had had 12 teeth extracted on that same day. Essendon's final training run was on the Thursday, with a crowd of spectators watching on, making suggestions about who would play and regretting players that had been discarded earlier that could have made a real difference now. Jack Worrell trained his men, but not too hard. Short sprints and half runs, passing the ball. Worrell said, quote, They are playing the game so well that all the work they need now is something that will sharpen them up and that gives them that extra bit of dash that counts for so much. As true for the modern game as it was then. Jim Martin and Bill Griffith were the two players called up to replace Fred O'Shea and Ern Cameron. Jim, Bull Martin, was a big burly ruckman who had missed the 1911 Premiership when he had been reported for striking George Holden from Fitzroy and suspended for 12 weeks earlier in the season. He had also been charged by the police and was initially found guilty and fined, but he was eventually cleared on appeal, but the league did not lift the suspension, despite the decision of the legal system saying that he was not guilty. He had played 16 games and kicked 18 goals during the 1912 season, but had not played any of the finals. Bill Griffith had been playing for the Dons since 1899 and had been captain from 1907 to 1909. Earlier in 1912, he had stood out of the game, effectively on strike, looking for higher match payments in this era of professionalism. However, the club stood firm and he eventually returned to the team. He played six games for the season, 
and would take the field as fullback in the 1912 Grand Final, hoping to add to his premierships from 1901 and 1911. There was a team dinner at a local cafe where they discussed prospects and tactics for the big game. South Melbourne trained in front of hundreds of their supporters. They had lost the second semi-final against Essendon, but perhaps this might have helped them because now three of their stars had time to recover from injuries. There was talk of up to five men that did not play against Essendon in the first semi coming back into the team. These included Captain Charlie Ricketts, forward Len Mother Mortimer, and centreman Dick Mullaley, halfback Ed Wade, who had travelled all the way from Bairnsdale, where he had spent the season winning the local premiership, now returning to help his old club, and defender John Walsh. South had done their heavy training on Wednesday, and, like Essendon, Thursday night was about applying the finishing touches. They too had a dinner as a team, discussing tactics and strategies for the coming bout. I wonder if there was any discussion about winning the premiership for Henry Skinner, given his unexpected death earlier in the year. He had been the central figure on the South Melbourne community and sporting clubs. However, there was no mention of Henry Skinner in any of the reporting before the game. Pivot, writing in the age, had South as a favourite to win with their superior forward line. The curtain raiser for the grand final was the state school championship between Gold Street, Clifton Hill versus Mooney Ponds, both undefeated teams. Gold Street took out the state school premiership with great kicking for goal. Five goals to 32 to Mooney Ponds. Two goals, nine, 21. The umpire for the grand final was obviously Jack Elder. South Melbourne's captain was Charlie Ricketts, captain coach of the South Melbourne 1909 Premiership team. He had stood down as captain in 1910, where poor health meant that he would miss a number of games. He regained the leadership in 1912 and had led South to the top of the ladder and the opportunity for another Premiership. Essendon's captain was Alan Belcher, He had started his career at Collingwood in 1904, playing four games before establishing himself as one of the leading ruckmen of the game at Essendon. He had been captain coach in 1910 before the arrival of Jack Worrell, and the captaincy had also moved to Dave Smith, but with Smith touring for the Australian cricket team, Alan Belcher took over as skipper again. He had missed the 1911 premiership due to injury, but was now leading the side as they strived for back-to-back premierships. It was a fine afternoon at the MCG, tailor-made for football, with a record crowd of 54,463 people. People had arrived at the ground in all manner of vehicles, carts so old that they could have been used in the gold rush days, and modern motor cars and motorbikes. Essendon had the wind in the first quarter, but it was South that made the first push into their forward line, although this was defended without a score being recorded. And so, for much of the first quarter, it was the defenders dominating the game. Eventually, South Melbourne's forward pocket, Leo Rossich, was awarded a free kick by Jack Elder. Despite the narrow angle from near the boundary, the kick was straight and South had the first goal. South went forward again, but the Don's half-back flanker, Les White, took a strong mark and played on, getting the ball up the Essendon forward line, where veteran Frank Kane grabbed the ball and got their first goal. The quarter-time score had Essendon on the narrowest lead possible, one goal four to one goal three. Essendon started to take control in the second quarter. Their passing was more effective, and they seemed to be more cohesive. On the wing, South's Jim Caldwell was having a fine battle with the Don's Percy Ogden, but at one point Caldwell slipped, and Percy Ogden broke away on the run, taking a long shot to score Essendon's second goal. 
The third goal for Essendon was the result of good work by Walker to Martin to Shea, who passed it on to Jack Kirby, who snapped accurately. South Melbourne's Ruck Rover, Herb Milne, spent eight years at Fitzroy before joining South Melbourne in 1911. He had played in four grand finals, winning two premierships, so he knew all about the pressure that these games could create. His experience made itself felt in the second quarter, where he was able to kick the ball deep into the South Melbourne forward line, where Bert Franks picked the ball up and kicked South's second goal for the game, giving them some momentum going into the long break. The halftime score was Essendon 3 goals 9, 27, to South on 2 goals 4, 16. Despite South being the favourites of many an expert, and Essendon having to restructure their team after a number of injuries in the preliminary final, it was the Dons looking more likely to succeed at the halfway point of the game. Only their poor kicking in front of goal was keeping South in the game, despite the valiant efforts of their skipper, Charlie Ricketts. South started the third quarter well. They were getting the ball into their forward line, but were not able to convert. Not even Len Mortimer, well known for his accuracy, was able to score goals. As the quarter went on, it was clear that Essendon were playing the better game, moving up the wing and using the passing game more effectively than South. But despite this, they could not shoot accurately, adding behind after behind. Not until late in the quarter did Pat Shea pick up their fourth goal. At three-quarter time, Essendon were four goals 14-38 to South Melbourne, two goals 6-18. It would take a huge effort for the Southerners to bridge the gap in the last quarter, and if Essendon could get their kicking boots on, the game would be well and truly over. And the final quarter played out like the previous three. Even the most optimistic South Melbourne supporters knew they would be going home to a quiet evening, and some left the ground early, no doubt to avoid the cheering Essendon supporters and miss out on some of the crush. South did score a couple of goals, but it was too little, too late. The final scores were Essendon 5 goals 17-47 to South 4 goals 9-33. It was the same olds living up to their nickname, the same old team winning back-to-back premierships in 1912. Jack Worrell had coached his way to five premierships in seven years, a feat well worth bringing up when comparing successful coaches across the different eras. Charlie Ricketts, the South Melbourne captain, congratulated Essendon, saying that the better team had won. He said, we could not get into our stride, and the ball was difficult to get onto. Essendon captain Alan Belcher also thought the best team had won and took satisfaction in the victory because they had been regarded as, quote, completely out of the running. But we've been right back in it for the last three matches, and it was destined to be another happy night in the Essendon suburb, as the Essendon VFA team had also had a successful day, winning back-to-back premierships in their VFA by defeating Footscray, a unique example of the football dominance across two years for one suburb, even though neither club had anything to do with the other. And it was only the VFA club that actually played in Essendon, and some might question how many of the players from either club actually came from Essendon but I'm sure the citizens were very proud of their local teams. There would be no post-season game this year for the Premiership of Australia against the South Australian Premier's West Adelaide. The Essendon Committee reviewed the invitation, but realised that with eight or nine players not being able to get leave from their employers, it would not be possible to assemble a team to fairly represent the club. Post-season games had been an established tradition for the Premiers, either in country Victoria in the early years of the VFL, or, more recently, against the South Australian Premiers for the Premiership of Australia, but not this year. At the October League meeting, after congratulations had been offered to Essendon and their various financial dividends allocated, 
there was a proposal from Ed Kennedy of Carlton for an independent tribunal to hear charges against players. The chair of the three-person committee would be the VFL president, Mr McCracken, and then two gentlemen to be found independent of the clubs. This proposal was endorsed unanimously. An independent tribunal had finally been agreed. So that was season 1912. The players had numbers on their jumpers and you could buy the footy record before the game to learn more about the clubs and the players. Some of the post-season reviews in the newspapers noted that while the game was in good health, there were issues to be addressed. The standard of umpires was a common complaint. And good points were made about improving the feedback to umpires and developing a more consistent interpretation of the rules. But this is probably an issue that could be raised by some supporters no matter what year is being reviewed. Essendon were the Premiers of 1912, having joined Fitzroy, Collingwood and Carlton as clubs to have achieved the double. But they would be challenged in the coming season. Bird O'Shea's broken leg and Ern Cameron's leg injury in the preliminary final meant that their VFL careers were over, and the loss of champion Bill Bowsbridge to a knee injury mid-season meant that three of their best players would be missing for season 1913. Even with supercoach Jack Worrell, the same odds were going to have a hard time replacing the loss of these players. Join me next time in Grand Final History as we explore season 1913, the 17th VFL season, to see if South can redeem their Grand Final loss or will another club rise to the top. And if you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. And if you have any questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or the Facebook and Twitter pages. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.